0: I'd like to ask if you would do something with me follow the children with your eyes as they leave and whenever you see something on the screen that says children dismissed use that as an opportunity to pray for them those impressionable young minds are going right now to be taught God's Word how to worship how to praise why to praise all sorts of great things so watch them look at them and let that be a signal both today and all the time when the kids are dismissed, they're a part of our body, a very real part. Let's pray for those who are working with them. It's a very, very important, significant ministry. They give up a lot to be able to do that. So uh, let's join in prayer together now before we look to God's Word. Heavenly Father, thank you for the children. Thank you that you love the children and we love to sing Jesus Loves the Little Children. I pray that you would help them now and throughout this entire next year, that they will receive your truth from people who love you and love them. Thank you for that, and thank you that we now can look together to your word. What a great privilege it is for us to do that. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Doing something a little different. You're expecting to turn to Matthew, maybe, but we're going to begin a series of studies in the book of Titus. We're going to take a short break from our study in Matthew. We started a study in Matthew back in February of 2014, so I think you're entitled to a little break from Matthew. Pastor Search Committee actually requested that I spend some time in Titus, since it's a book that includes great information about leadership. It's a short letter of Paul to Titus, can be outlined in many different ways, and here is one of those ways. Chapter 1 qualifications of church leaders. It'll help us to know what to look for when we seek to fill two positions on our pastoral staff in the near and the not too distant future. The search committee wanted us to be able to be sure that we know the right people that we're looking for. So the qualifications of church leaders in chapter 1. In chapter 2 the conduct of church members. So we're going to hear about the qualifications of church leaders and then in chapter 2 will be payback time the conduct of church members. And then chapter 3, we will see the character and conduct of leaders and members before the unbelieving world. And it will give us the opportunity to be challenged, to reach out into our community and communities together in order to reach them for the Lord Jesus Christ. So before... We go too much further. Let's read the first four verses that are by way of introduction in Titus chapter 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior, to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I'd like to make several observations this morning that will help us, I believe, to unlock these four verses. The author of the letter is identified in the first word, it's Paul, and that would be the Apostle Paul. I'm going to assume that he doesn't need any introduction. I think we know about the Apostle Paul. We could spend months and months and months introducing him, but I'm going to assume some knowledge there, and I do want us to to not spend the, um, the rest of the year in Titus. So what I'd like to be able to do is simply introduce him as Paul and then make a few observations. First of all, Paul identified himself in a way that seems remarkably long and formal for such a brief letter and for a letter to a close friend and colleague. If I were going to email Mickey, who's sitting down here in the first row, I wouldn't say, dear Mickey, it's Pastor Paul, you know me, let me tell you where I went to seminary, let me tell you um, some things about myself. Um, I'm the one that has Connor, the grandchild, I'm the one who has... Dawn, the granddaughter. I'm the one who has all of the, I, I don't have to tell Mickey all of that. I get right to the point and say, Mickey, this email is talk about the uh, basketball outreach. What can we do to help? And uh, that would be a good thing for anybody to email him and say, what can I do to help for the, the basketball outreach ministry? But this seems like this, this formal introduction to a close friend and colleague and protege seems a little bit out of place. But keep in mind, this letter introduces Paul not for the sake of Titus, but for the sake of the believers in the churches in Crete. We didn't read verse 5, but if you look ahead at verse 5, it tells us that Titus is in Crete. He has a job to do with the churches that are there in Crete. So Crete becomes something that's very significant to this letter to Titus. Let's locate it. You can see here on the map that Crete is a little island, and you can see from the geography, it's in the Mediterranean Sea, it's southeast of Greece, southwest of Asia Minor, north of Africa, and as you can see, it's running horizontally. It's 160 miles long that way and 7 to 35 miles wide. The churches were new in Crete, Very roughly, they were about 15 years old at this particular point. At that time, all the churches had to be somewhat new because we were in the birth of the church and the church growth. The believers in the churches in Crete were immature. They had to be. They didn't have any choice. And there could have been many congregations spread across that island. There probably were because if you notice in verse 5, appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So as many towns are there, there are going to be churches, and there are going to be a lot of them, and Titus had his work cut out for him. Paul's introduction would add credibility to Titus' ministry, because Paul had a measure of authority that others did not have. And no doubt, you know that a lot of the letters at this particular time were circular letters, that were given from one church to another one and passed on back and forth, and this may have been a letter of reference On the part of Paul to give Titus some credibility to these churches that he was going to be working with in Crete as he was going there appointing elders in each one of these particular churches. So Paul's introduction would be something that would be very helpful to Titus and it's something that's helpful to us as well as we're thinking in terms of what it is that God would have in church leaders. The first thing that he says he was a servant of God. It's a great way to begin. And when you're looking for a church leader, that's a great place to begin, too. A servant of God. Here's a definition that I uncovered that I really appreciate on the word servant or doulos as it is in the Greek language. It is a slave, and of course that means a voluntary slave in this context, one who is in a permanent relation of servitude to another, his will being altogether consumed in the will of The other and as the Apostle Paul says I am a servant of God so he voluntarily places himself in a permanent relationship of servitude to God God's will is what takes precedence so the will of Paul is being consumed in the will of God what a great description of those who would be servants of God And I trust that would be all of us. That's not just for leadership, but that's something that we should be looking for for sure with regard to leadership. Paul also identifies himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ, a sent one, a commissioned one, an ambassador, doing the bidding of the one who sends him. And that certainly would gain respect on the part of those people and those elders and those people in the churches at Crete when Titus would go there to be with them. The idea of an apostle is very significant, and I can't go into all of that, but just a few things. The church was founded by the apostles. The apostles were eyewitnesses to the resurrection. Even the apostle Paul was an eyewitness to the resurrected Savior on that road to Damascus. They were chosen personally by the Lord Jesus Christ. They were given credibility by being able to perform signs and wonders and do things that were astounding, the miracles that they did in front of the the people of that particular time. So the Apostle Paul had a huge reputation as an apostle at this particular point already. The apostles would have an eternal place of honor, we read in the Scriptures also. And so he was a servant of God. He was a sent one by God, or an apostle... And he was an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of God's elect, it says, and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Knowledge always leads somewhere. Knowledge should have led each one of us to godliness. Unfortunately, if we read down in verse 16 in the same chapter, there are those in Crete who were not godly people. They're partially described in verse 16. They profess to know Remember, I said knowledge always leads somewhere. They profess to know God. However, that wasn't real knowledge because it didn't lead anywhere. It says, but they deny him by their works. Actually, they're detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Knowledge should lead us to godliness, the knowledge of God's truth. Well, that's observation number one. Observation number two, and we're going to spend a lot of time on this one. Observation number two, the term God's elect has confused many people over time. And you see that expression, God's elect, in the first verse. When it says Paul is identifying himself as he has already, and then it says, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness In other places, we see the term chosen. God has chosen individuals. God has elected individuals. And as I say, that's caused some confusion over time. Some like to think that we have free will, and we choose whether or not we're going to be saved. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to try to answer this question in a briefer way than I ordinarily do, and I'm going to answer it the same way that I have several times over the last almost 40 years here at the church. This will probably be the last time you have to listen to it, some of you that have been here all of that time. But I I think that it makes, in my judgment anyway, very clear this idea of the difference between free will and election. Which is it really? How are people saved? Are we chosen by God for salvation? Is salvation totally God's choice? I choose you and you and you, but I'm not going to choose you, 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 and the rest of you, but I'm going to choose you. Is that what, how it works? Does God select those who will be saved? Calvinists, among others, teach that the election of individuals to salvation is absolute. It's unconditional. It's due to an eternal decree of God. And they teach a limited atonement that would mean that Christ died simply for the elect. He didn't die for the non-elect because they were not going to have their sins forgiven anyway. So are we chosen by God for salvation, or do we make a free will choice to accept God's free gift of salvation? Arminians, among others, view election as based on repentance and faith. The decree of God is that all who truly repent of their sins and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. But every responsible person determines for himself whether or not he will repent and believe. Enough grace is given to everyone to enable them to make the right decision. Who's right? Are we saved by election or by free will? And the answer... Yes. And some people say, that's no answer. I ask the question, are we saved by election or free will? And you answer, yes. Well, let's examine it. Election or free will? And I think you'll see what I mean within the next few moments. When I study this scripture, and I study the texts that deal with election and the ones that people who believe in free will, that they use... I find that it's always like this. On the one hand, on the one hand are verses like John 15, 16, Jesus speaking to his disciples. And he said, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. Fruit bearers are those who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ and that your fruit should abide. It should be lasting. It should be significant. It should show that you have the genuine faith. So that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. So on the one hand, Jesus says to his disciples, I chose you. You didn't choose me. That's on the one hand. But there's always another hand, it seems. In Joshua chapter 24, verse 15... Joshua is giving a farewell speech, basically, to the people who are about to scatter. And he says to them, And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. He's telling the people, we all have a decision to make. You've got to choose today if you're going to serve the gods who are in this land, the gods of the Canaanites and the Amorites and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Termites and all the rest of the ites that are there. You, you can worship whomever you please. But then he concludes with this, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So we have a nation that is given a choice you choose who you're going to serve. but i'm going to tell you my choice is already made that's what i'm going to do does god allow free will in those kind of decisions well on the one hand in john doesn't seem to on the other hand in joshua it does seem to i'm going to do a few hands here on the one hand in first corinthians chapter 1 verses 26 28 it says for consider your calling consider your calling That's on the one hand. But on the other hand, what does John 3.16 say? For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Whoever believes in him, whoever makes that choice, but the key word there is whoever on the one hand John 6:39 says and this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me but raise it up on the last day Jesus saying God has given him individuals but on the other hand in Matthew 11:28 Jesus says come to me all you who are labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest does that not sound like an invitation Does that not sound like Jesus is saying, here's a choice you can have, come to me and I will give you rest. You can also deny that request. On the one hand, 2 Thessalonians 2.13 says, but we ought also to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. But on the other hand, Romans 10.13 says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord... Will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, so there's an invitation again, there's a choice there. If you want to call on the name of the Lord to be saved, please do that. On the one hand, Second Timothy chapter one nine says, He saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. It's because of his own purpose, it tells us. But then on the other hand, Romans ten nine says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's again another invitation. That's a challenge. It's open to everybody who will do that. Keep going on the one hand second Timothy chapter 2:10 therefore i endure everything for the sake of the elect that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory the elect are the ones who are going to obtain salvation but on the other hand acts 10:43 all the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name there does not appear to be a limited atonement in any of those whoever will or the blanket invitation that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness on the one hand revelation 17 8 it talks about having names written in the book of life from the foundation of the world and it talks about They will marvel to see the beast, and it's talking about the end times there, but from the foundation of the world, the inference there is that there are those whose names will be written in the book of life. It was already known beforehand. On the other hand, a few chapters later in Revelation, the spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come, let the one who desires take the water of life without price. So the invitation is, come, 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 So we've got a little bit of a dilemma. Let me summarize. Summarize election. On the one hand, God has from eternity selected those who were to be saved and spend eternity in heaven. God totally on his own, apart from outside influence, chooses the members of the body of Christ for himself by his own will. On the other hand, summary of free will. Yet an individual must come. He must will to be saved. He is responsible. To make a choice what do we conclude you look on the screen we conclude we've got two hands that's the only conclusion that I can come to as I study the scriptures and I see on the one hand on the other hand and I see scriptures that are teaching both of these at the same time so let me ask you this question have we answered the question clearly are people saved due to God's election or due to their own choice and the answer again is yes And you may say, that doesn't compute. The two don't go together. They're mutually exclusive. You're right. The fact that they both exist together forms an apparent paradox. There's no paradox in the mind of God. God understands this fully and completely, obviously. Our salvation, our faith depend on the decree and sovereignty of God. And yet on the day you come to Jesus, it was because you desired to, you freely chose to. You aren't a Christian against your will. You are a Christian because you have willed that you would respond to the greatest invitation that anybody could ever give, the invitation for salvation in Christ. And yet salvation is by grace through faith. It's God's gift. It's not of works lest we begin to think the praise should come to us. To reject election and accept only a person's free will is a denial of God's sovereignty and his word. But to accept the truth of election and reject man's free will is to deny God's word and his invitation to all, all these whoever wills. It makes a farce of every invitation that Jesus gives us to come to him if, in fact, only a few are going to be able to do that. So there's a third option besides election and free will. They don't have to be either or. They can be both and. God's election, man's free will existing together. God does the electing. That's his business and only his responsibility. Second Timothy tells us that God knows those that are his. So God does the electing, but we must do the believing. It's our responsibility. We don't have to conclude, well, only the elect will be saved, therefore I don't have to witness to anybody ever again, or the only basis upon my witness will be because I'm commanded to, but it won't do any good anyway. If you're not elect, then why should I bother to do that? For an illustration, look at Romans chapter 13, verse 1. I have it on the screen, but if you want to turn to it, that's fine too. Romans chapter 13, verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from god and those that exist have been instituted by god did you catch that those that exist those who are the governing authorities have been instituted by god every one of our leaders is there because god put them there Now, that's harder to take some election years than it is others. In an election, we vote for individuals to be our government officials. Certain people, by their human will, decide to run for office. Others decide to vote for them. The people put them in office, right? Isn't that right? The people put them in office. They vote for them. They vote for electors. They go to an electoral college. Yet the Bible says it is God who puts them there. I don't know how that works. God doesn't cancel our human responsibility. But underneath and above and all around is his sovereignty working his will in human life. So we vote our leaders in and God places them there at one and the same time. There are those that state that the Bible seems to teach election and seems to teach free will for human beings, and the truth is somewhere in the middle. Please understand that's not what I'm saying. The truth is not in the middle. It's at both extremes at the same time. But don't worry about how it fits together. That's up to God. Now, just so that I make sure that you understand what I'm saying here, that doesn't make me a Calvinist, nor does it make me an Arminian it doesn't make me a part of either camp. I prefer to be where I think the Bible is rather than to figure out my beliefs according to a system or to attach a label to it. Observation 3. You look carefully at verse 2. The faith and knowledge spoken of in verse 1 rest, verse 2, on the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. And so when we look at that and we see that the result is going to be the hope that is there in hope of eternal life, we understand that our hope is not a cross your fingers and hope that it turns out that way. That's not hope in the Scriptures. It means we're waiting for the promise to happen in the future, but we know that it's going to happen. It's just deferred. That's why it's called hope. And so here, our faith and our knowledge are resting on the hope of eternal life. Is eternal life a maybe? Is our hope possibly in vain? No, it says eternal life is based on God's promise. He does not lie. This was not an afterthought. It was promised before the beginning of time. It will happen. If you ever wonder about it, and I have people wonder about it all the time. I have people wonder about the whole idea. Can I really know? I had somebody talk to me about it yesterday. Can I really know that a a close relative is in heaven now and will be there for all of eternity? And and the answer is, You you ever doubt this, Everyone assurance, just go to 1 John 5, 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. I write these to you so that you may know that you have eternal life. You don't have to wonder. It's not wishful thinking. It's not a maybe. You believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. you placed your faith and your trust in him for your eternal salvation. You've got eternal life. And it's not something you will get, It's already yours when you have Jesus, because he's living within you eternally, and he will be forever. Observation number four. Paul's credibility was also established. Remember, we're talking about him writing to Titus, but he's got this long introduction. His credibility is certainly seen there in this letter of reference that will be used. So Paul's credibility was also established when he referred to the faith and the knowledge that we've just seen rests on the hope of eternal life, he refers to that as something that God brought to light at the proper time through the preaching entrusted to Paul by the command of God our Savior. And that's exactly what verse 3 says. Paul was given an important message to preach, and God's timing is always perfect at the proper time it was preached. He's never late. He's never early. And so as all the Union Church may be looking for leadership, may be looking for a couple of leaders in the the future, we're looking for credibility in these individuals. Make sure that the message that is preached is always going to be on the basis of the Word. It's going to be on the basis of the Word, which it tells us so clearly here at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. Never settle for watered-down preaching and never conclude that preaching is something of the past. We don't need preaching, and I've, I've heard this for many, many years. I've heard people say, well, why do we have to have preaching at every service? Why can't we just get together and worship? Maybe you've heard that. Maybe you've said that. Worship comes from the preaching of God's Word. Please don't ever settle for anything less than that. And you can see here that Paul believes that this is very, very important. Very important at the proper time manifested in his Word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. The final observation... Observation number 5 in verse 4, you can see as you glance at verse 4 again, a very close relationship existed between the Apostle Paul and Titus. Do you notice what he calls Titus? My true child in a common faith. What that's basically saying, among other things, Titus was led to the Lord by Paul. He was his spiritual son. And Paul wrote to Titus, and this is probably in the fall of A.D. 63. The reason why he wrote was given in verse 5. We didn't read that officially, but we referred to it several times. He's to go to Crete and he's to appoint elders there. He's helping to get the churches organized. Paul trusted him. That's why he sent him there to Crete. We can see Paul's trust and his love for Titus in the few New Testament references to him. Titus' name does not appear in Acts, but we see it re- seem referred to in several of the letters. And let me, in rapid succession, just go through a couple of the points with regard to him. In Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, they were still fighting this whole idea about how, how much Jewish you had to be in order to be a true believer. Could you trust Christ and get rid of some of the trappings of being a Jew? Did you have to be circumcised or not? And in Galatians, the first three verses of chapter 2, Titus became a test case. It was almost as if Paul brought Titus as an example of someone who was so exemplary that his failure to be circumcised hadn't hurt him at all. And so even Titus did not have to be circumcised. Why not? Because this was a man of godly character, and people would look at him and say, well, if he doesn't have to be, and look at the life he lives, and look at how he serves the Lord Jesus, then it's okay for us to agree with what the apostles are saying. That we don't have to be circumcised. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 13, very interesting verse. The apostle Paul was at Troas at the time. And he was at Troas because he says there was an open door for me to be at Troas. There was an open door for the Lord in Troas. But he says my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. He was so concerned about Titus that he left where an open door was. It was more important to him to go and figure out what was going on with Titus. His brother, notice he called him his child, his true child before, and now it's his brother Another interesting passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 5 to 7. For even when we came into Macedonia, he talked about before about his spirit was not at rest. Now he said our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. What do you need in a case like that? When turmoil on the outside, fears are on the inside, what do you need? You need maybe somebody to come up alongside of you that you know and that you love and that you trust. And he says this, But God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. So he was comforted because here's Titus. Titus is here to comfort me. But he was also comforted by the fact that the people were comforting Titus because he loved Titus so much that that also encouraged him. Second Corinthians chapter seven, verses 13 and 14. Paul rejoiced at the joy of Titus because his spirit had been refreshed by the Corinthians. Same thing that we just mentioned, reiterated a little bit later. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 6, we read that Titus is being sent with a money gift for the saints. He's a trusted brother. 2 Corinthians 8 also verses 16 and 17. Of Titus, it says he's coming with the same earnest care, Paul says, that I have for you, the Corinthians. He's a chip off the old block. The same earnest love for you. In 2 Corinthians 8.23, he's referred to as a partner, a fellow worker. 2 Corinthians 12.18, he's referred to as being honest. Titus is not someone to take advantage of anyone. So a very close relationship existed between the Apostle Paul and Titus, something that's very, very significant. And we will see this as we go through the letter. You will see one writing to one that he truly loves in the Lord. Purpose of the letter to Titus? It was a letter of leadership. It was to encourage and strengthen a young pastor whom Paul had discipled and mentored. It was to instruct the leaders of the churches in Crete. And it was to instruct the people in the churches. I don't know about you, but I'm really looking forward to delving into it and seeing all that the Lord has for us at this particular time as this teaching intersects with us at Alden Union Church. What we see here is the benchmark of leadership. It was Second Timothy two two in action, and I close with this verse: Second Timothy chapter two verse two. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, Paul writing to Timothy now, but he says, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So as we look to the future of all the Union Church, we're looking for someone who is able to be an equipper, someone who is able to entrust to faithful men what has been passed down to him from those who have gone on before so that others are able to teach as well. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so very, very much for your word, your word settled in heaven. Your word that we're looking forward to that's going to tell us about the qualifications of church leaders. It's going to tell us about the conduct of church members. It's going to tell us about the character and conduct of leaders and members before the unbelieving world. We look forward to that. We want to be equipped well to do your work. So we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.